Hi, and welcome to Figure of Speech, a program from WRBH where every week you can meet local poets and fiction writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. This episode, we welcome on poet for hire, Ben Aylshire, who is also a member of the class. Greetings from Magazine Street in New Orleans. My name is Benjamin Aylshire. I'm a poet. I write uh, poems for strangers on a typewriter uh, here in the French Quarter of New Orleans, but also uh, around the world. I travel quite a bit. So I work uh, mostly down here, but also in Paris and New York and uh, Havana, London, Spain, um, everywhere I can go. Uh, so I'm going to read you um, poems from my book, Currency, which is a collection of these street poems that I wrote just spontaneously in about about 10 minutes each for just strangers in the street who pass me by looking for something, a love poem or a political rant poem or, uh, you know, whatever whatever they need in that particular moment. I think I'll start, though, with some, some newer work. I'm actually working on a novel right now, an autobiographical novel, sort of telling the stories behind uh, these poems and the strange lifestyle that I lead where I, I sort of depend upon, um, you know, these poems that I write in the street in order to to uh, eat and drink and pay my rent and things like that and all the strange sort of adventures that happened to me trying to make that work. Uh, the book's called Poet for Hire, Adventures of a 21st Century Troubadour. And I'm going to start with this section that takes place in Spain about a year ago. In the Ayuntamiento offices, she spells my name into the phone with the call letters of cities and nations. Elachire, Almeria, Lugo, España, Sevilla, Huelva, Italia, Roma, España. How long will you be here in Granada? Just two more days, I lie, and she shrugs, hangs up the phone, and immediately stamps my document with a seal and signs it. The Spaniards are fond of stamps. I thank her and fold my new poetic license carefully into thirds, tuck it in the breast pocket of my suit just over my heart, and walk back outside through the open courtyard's mosaic of overgrown cobblestones. Past the nativity and the crowd banging tambourines and guitars, bellowing Christmas songs, are they drunk? I can't believe this is City Hall, which until now I've only associated with vague, bureaucratic horror. Past the Moorish prince tucked in a nave in a corner of the courtyard, his body shimmering in gold satin. He's still grinning with his saber and feathered turban while a troika of Blanquita grandmothers have their pictures taken with him. They titter as he holds his scimitar aloft in one hand and gathers all three of them into the frame with his free arm. Where are the other two kings? Is this vaguely sexual? Maybe not at all, and it's horrid of me for even wondering. The prince looks like he's having a good time, but he's being paid to look like he's having a good time. A man with a camera orders me, Come, come, take a Christmas memory. And I think of all the tourists snapping photos of me in the plaza, our bizarre kinship of spectacle for consumption. All these posed photos of the prince and I won't even molder in a shoebox. They'll live forever in the cloud, or at least until the desert city of whirring servers slips into the sea. Before the door opening back onto Plaza del Carmen, there's a metal detector and an x-ray, but the guard who's running it is smoking outside and everyone streams in and out without having their metal detected or their bone structure illumined in ochre. 
which is good for me since typewriters always look exactly like bombs under an x-ray and it's difficult to explain how and why I carry it around the world to write poems for strangers in the street. I've come here because yesterday a gruff policeman in a large white helmet kicked me out of where I was working in Plaza Nueva. The size of his white helmet seemed in direct proportion to his authority, and he used one wide sweep of his arm to illustrate his point that this whole plaza was not for activities. Despite the enraptured crowd watching the flamenco show, the fervent guitarists, the dancers' shoes cracking like whips on the wide, smooth geometry of flagstones, the gypsies selling flowers and herbs, the Africans selling sneakers spread out on blankets, and the circaros starfished and revolving inside a plastic ring like da Vinci's sketch of Vitruvian man. Isn't there an area where it is free to write poems? I asked innocently as he strode away in his motorcycle knee boots. At this he stopped on a dime and pivoted back to eye me before shifting his speech to serious machine gun cadence. No tienes la atención, entonces. I is just to arrive today now, I lie, shifting to into disarmingly touristy Spanish. It's been six months since I was nearly arrested by those fascist private security goons on the South Bank of London, and I still always fear for the worst when interacting with cops, any cops. I was about to tell him I'm a student on vacation, but then he just said to go to City Hall and pick up a license. I thanked him, and then he added severely, Manana por la manana, as if he might arrest me as the cathedral strikes the twelfth bell of noon. It's too cold to write poems outside, except for precisely five hours when the sun streams over the Albaicín's labyrinth and into Plaza Nueva. Every day, something surreal happens. One of the first people I write for is a guy in plaid pants walking his dog. He's got that signature faux-hawk pompadour look that Spaniards can somehow pull off in a casual manner. And after I give him his poem, he pulls out a scroll from his bag and hands me one of his own. Then an old-timer tells me about Lorca as if they were good friends and recites one of his own long rhyming poems from memory. One day, a film crew arrives and says they're doing a documentary on poetry in Granada, and they'll come back tomorrow to interview me, but before I can hammer out a business card for them, they evaporate into a narrow alley, and I never see them again. Very quickly, I realize I have to change my sign from Poet for Hire to Un Poema Para Ti, or I won't get any business. I start bringing my dictionary along, too, because unlike in Cuba, most people here insist on having their poem in Spanish, which is terrifying. The first one I write in Spanish is for a 20-something named Sofia. I want a poem about the sea, she says, looking off into the distance. Granada isn't near the sea at all. It makes me think about looking for what we want in all the wrong places. Isn't it an act of defiance sometimes? Are you from the coast? No. Have you ever been to the sea? Only once, as a child. Will you ever return? At this she thinks for a long time before pronouncing a no that felt like the period at the end of a long novel. I'll have to work with what I've got. She promises to come back in ten minutes. El mar. Buscas el mar en una máquina obsoleta. 
Buscas el mar en un laberinto de alfabetos. Buscas el mar en una infinitud de olivos. Buscas el mar en el vientre de la catedral. Buscas el mar donde no hay mareas nada, porque no quieres que la luna ni nadie te ordene. Para Sofía. Which approximates to the sea. You search for the sea in an obsolete machine. You search for the sea in a labyrinth of alphabets. You search for the sea in an infinitude of olive groves. You search for the sea in the cathedral's womb. You search for the sea where there aren't any waves at all, because you won't be commanded, not by the moon, nor anyone else. It's a little pithy and surreal. I'm not convinced the poem's length justifies its employment of anaphora. I can hear a workshop somewhere deciding. But I think she might like it. There's a vagueness to the language that might allow it to become about whatever it was that's both pushing and pulling her back to a childhood shore. When people refuse to tell me the secret behind their poem, I used to avoid vagueness like the plague and try to read them, try to mystically guess what it was that happened. Once in a while, this can have spectacular results. When it works, the poem pierces through the invisible vellum that separates strangers and we hold each other and weep. But it can also backfire. A suicide might actually have been a broken wrist, might have been a rape, might have been a divorce, might have been nothing at all. In those cases when I guessed wrong, it made me feel like a charlatan. So now I try to interview people more, try to truly get them to trust me with their pain, with their raw memory. But it has to be their decision. If they don't want to talk about it, I can't force them. In these cases, I take more of a fortune-telling approach, where a certain amount of vagueness allows them to write their own meaning into what's written. The ending is a paradox, but it also describes her own personal power as what validates the poem's central conceit as workshop jargonese might venture. Or so I hope. There's only 10 minutes to make these decisions, after all, and in that 10 minutes, there are crazy people droning at me about their grandfather's typewriter, and I'm hungry, and I need to piss, and children are pointing their fingers and laughing at me in this seething mass of humanity where I am somehow astoundingly alone. Five o'clock strikes just as the sun slips behind the buildings lining the other end of the plaza. It feels just like an abrupt blackout on a theater stage. Instantly, I'm shivering and remembering that I'm actually in a desert and realizing sadly that Sophia is never coming back. Another orphan poem. These ones fascinate me. Either the customer never cared very much in the first place and simply forgot to come back and pick up the poem they ordered, or some strange event conspired to prevent them from returning. In New Orleans, people just wander off and get drunk in an unspooling skein of bars and completely forget which is why I reluctantly had to institute a down payment system there for anyone holding a drink, especially hand grenades. But never in my life have I had as many orphan poems in Spain. One day a grown man asks for a poem as a birthday gift for his elderly mother, then never comes back. Ay de mí. What horror. This girl Sofia, though, she was a poetry customer par excellence. When I asked her what she wanted, she gazed off into the distance and named the first beautiful thing that came into her mind. 
She seemed overjoyed that a foreigner in a suit and tie was going to compose a poem for her on an old typewriter for whatever price she was able to pay. I was certain she would come back. Something must have happened, prevented her. In times like this, I love to fantasize. Was she waylaid by some obligation? and raced back at dusk only to find the plaza deserted except for the pair of winos huddled by the cathedral doors. Did her appendix burst, or what? Was she hit by a car? And why is it easier for me to imagine her death than to consider that she might not actually care about poetry? Later that night, I write to Joanna in Madrid and tell her the story. As way of explanation, she just says simply, Spaniards never look back. That's an excerpt from um, a novel in progress called Poet for Hire. My name's Benjamin Aylshire. Uh, I'm a poet based here in New Orleans, uh, and I travel around the world quite a bit. I write poems for strangers in the street. So that's what uh, this, no- this novel's about, sort of an autobiographical novel. Really a memoir, but I'm going to sort of change everything around so I can sort of feel free to, to say whatever I want. And uh, now I guess I'll read some more of this, uh, uh, of my book, this collection of these street poems called Currency um, that uh, came out as a second edition earlier this year. I did a a great release party with Cassie Prine, another wonderful New Orleans uh, poet at the Saturn Bar in May, which was really fun. And uh, let's see. Yeah, you... I used to have it at the Maple Street Books, but they I think I think they're closed now. So um, I'll probably get it into the uh, Garden District Bookshop or um, the Mid City One or something like that. But uh, yeah, let me read a few of these. This is one of my favorites. It's a pretty recent one. I wrote this spring uh, while I was being interviewed on Royal Street by News with a Twist. Uh, that guy Wild Bill was interviewing me for the WGNO segment, and so. While he was interviewing me, I wrote him a poem about the news, and I thought of titling it News with a Twist, but with all the recent events going on, and because I'm more of a political poet, I called it Fake Noose. My television is a wooden doll, suspiciously heavy and rattling faintly like a SARS saber sheathed. Something doesn't add up. I open her like a jam jar, find Henry Kissinger head-scarved and peasant-skirted, clutching a Nobel Peace Prize, but I pop him like a Bud Light. And then Putin glistens, bare-breasted. I twist his hips, and that's when it happened. It was like a farm spilling out. It was a like farm. So many emperors in that circus giving me a thumbs up, that sound of one hand clapping. I had so much consent manufactured, my applause was deafening. Now I can do anything, even speak French. Listen, alternative fact, pas de, de, non de, guerre. Coup de ta. La la la. That's a poem, Fake Noose, uh, from my book Currency. For the last two summers, uh, I've been living in Paris. First in 2016, 
uh, inside the Shakespeare and Company bookstore, which is um, a really wonderful English language bookstore right on the Seine in front of Notre Dame. It's uh, in an old monastery from the 1500s, I think, and it's at uh, kilometer zero of Paris. So it's the spot where all the arrondissements sort of fan out. Um, and uh, it's a very literary bookstore. They have a really rich history. You might have recognized the name if you're into lost generation literature, Hemingway and Gertrude Stein and James Joyce and people like that. All used to hang out in Shakespeare and Company uh, in the original one run by Sylvia Beach, uh, who was one of the main figures um, in, the Amer- in the American sort of expatriate circle there in Paris. She was the one who actually published Ulysses by James Joyce when no one else would touch it, thereby sort of altering the course of literature forever. And then James Joyce found a, a bigger publisher and cut her out of the deal, sort of abandoning her as the Nazis were closing in which is another whole story. She's a really fascinating character. Uh, her, her autobiography is really, really great, and anything you can find about her is, is really wonderful. Um, she's quite a character. Anyway, I, I was living there because they have this, this program of sorts since the 1950s. It reopened in the current location as a sort of bohemian you know, gathering place. And uh, the owner, George Whitman, who's this very eccentric American guy who claimed to be related to Walt Whitman. He was a very wonderful eccentric guy and he would host poetry readings there and stuff like that. And he would host young writers and dreamers and artists and sort of vagabonds who were passing through Paris. And he would host them in the shop and he would uh, let them shelve books in the store a couple hours a day in exchange for a place to sleep, which was often you know, on a bare stone floor or on a, a sort of bench seat or something like that. And that tradition is still alive today. And if you're if you're a, a young writer, you can you can go do that. Um, if you're ever in Paris, I highly recommend it. Uh, so I did that for about two months, and uh, it was perfect for me because everyone that comes in the bookshop uh, speaks at least some English. I speak some French, but not uh, really good enough to write in French. I do write in Spanish when I have to, but I, f- I feel a little nervous writing in French. And so, um, since it's an English language bookstore, everyone pretty much speaks English. They're going there to find cool books in English, lost generation books, beat generation books, because then in the in the 50s and 60s, it became a big um, beat sort of um, gathering place too and inspired Lawrence Ferlinghetti to start City Lights in San Francisco, yada, yada. Uh, really fascinating um, place. I recommend reading about it or checking it out. And uh, so anyway, I wrote a lot of poems there in front of the store. And uh, I'll read one now. It's called uh, Telegram to a Suicidal Friend. Lily, greetings from Paris. Stop. The rain is inexhaustible. Stop. It makes me think of you. Stop. Not that you could ever be measured by the elliptical paths of celestial bodies, but happy birthday. Stop. In the street, I heard a priest muttering in Latin, and it made me think of you. Stop. I saw a child eating alphabet soup, And it reminded me of playing Scrabble with you. Stop. The tiles cool and secret in our palms. Stop. The possibilities infinite. Stop. Lily. Stop. Never stop. Stop. That's a poem, uh, Telegram to a Suicidal Friend from my book Currency. So I'll read a few more here. Uh, This is one of the first ones that I wrote in New Orleans. 
in 2013. Uh, when I first moved down here, I grew up in Vermont and uh, used to play with bands and things like that. And we had toured through New Orleans in 2007 and I uh, sort of fell in love with the city and got here as soon as I could, which was uh, 2013. This is one of the first poems I wrote uh, in exchange for a ride across town. It's called Chariot. Glassed in and armored, it bears you across the virtuous avenues, piety, independence, wheels you through the slow bramble of desire, palms shuddering you through a sudden jungle. What you need now is a passenger, a navigator's ancient loneliness looming in you. As the streets dissolve into words and you are left standing unhorsed, with your palms full of numerals slipping through your fingers like sand or ashes. So usually I work on Royal Street, although now there's a proliferation of uh, copycats and sort of uh, strange people as well with typewriters out there. It used to just be me out there for, for a couple years. There's been a crew on Frenchman Street for years and years, uh, decades even. I've, I've heard people tell me since like the 80s at least. Um, so I'm not sure how far back it goes um but i would sit on royal street uh that's where i'll be this winter and spring as well you can come find me and uh one day a couple after the the ferguson uh murder and riots uh were happening someone asked me for a poem about ferguson and um typewriters uh, I don't know how familiar you are with typewriters, but they have three settings, not just the black ink, but also a red ink setting. And then uh, there's a white ink setting, which is was used for mimeograph sheets. And so it's actually not using any ink at all. Um, and so to write the poem, I really wasn't sure how to how to confront that, you know, uh, intensive a topic. And so I switched back and forth between the colors of ink and then the last lines of the poem are written on the white setting with no no ink at all, just hammered as hard as I can into the paper. Ferguson. Red ink for the pool of blood. Black ink for the skin it poured from. Red ink for the twelve holes shaped like stars. One for every month of the year. One for each of Christ's apostles. One for each seat on the jury. Black ink for the pupils of the witnesses. Red ink for the redeeming fires blooming in televisions. Black ink for the slave ship's tar feeding those fires. Red ink for the officer's hands caught like herrings. Black ink for the hieroglyphics of our Constitution and the court stenographers weeping. Red ink for the four octagonal oracles planted at every street corner, spelling out what we must do. And white ink for the demon in my people who will not heed that message. My poem, Ferguson, from my book, Currency. I'll just read a, a couple more here. It's my time. Uh, I'll read a, a new poem that's not in the book that I wrote this summer when I was in New York for a few weeks. Um, and I'd set up in Washington Square Park. And so this is uh, what I wrote for someone who 
said that they were busy, so they they just uh, whatever it is, just make it a short, make it a short poem. So this is what I wrote for them. Washington Square Park. Just a short poem, please. I want a fragment of what might have been. Incomplete, there is no end to its becoming. In this way, we must never love each other utterly. But where is the fountain's eruption that you wanted? Where is the saxophone's endless inquiry? Where are the chalk manifestos melting with spring? Where, where is the... <laughs> uh, that's my poem, Washington Square Park. And it uh, looks like I have time for just about one more here. So I'll close with a poem that I also wrote in Paris. Uh, this one I wrote for the owner of the bookstore, Sylvia Whitman, the daughter of George, who uh, has taken over the bookstore and uh, begins with, uh, she asked me for a poem about motherhood, which really frightened me. Uh, and then I remembered this quote from Grace Paley uh, from her poem, Responsibility. It is the responsibility of the poet to be a woman, which is what sort of um, provide the inspiration to kind of uh, get into that topic, which was so intimidating to me. Uh, anyway, um, this one's for Sylvia Whitman. Motherhood. Nine moons in the making of his leontine hair, but millennia have passed in order to forge those gold shocks shaking along the shop's cobblestones. It is no coincidence of language that maternity is as close to eternity as we can reach. Even the Seine, swollen, pregnant with cirrus and rain. Tell me, is it possible for any of us to be so heavy with another that we cut them loose? It's my poem, uh, Motherhood. It's... Uh, forthcoming in the in the next edition of the Iowa Review so you can check that out in spring of 2018 and uh, yeah thanks so much to WRBH for having me and I'll see you on Royal Street that was poet and member of the class Ben Aylshire and you've been listening to Figure of Speech a community poetry and writing program from WRBH Tune in Saturdays at 1 p.m. and every Monday at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. Thanks for listening.